Hi, my name is Jackie Marcel, and I serve here at Heights Baptist Church in the children's ministry. Thank you so much for joining us online. If you would like to connect with us, we have a Facebook page, Instagram, and our website, which is heightschurch.org connect. Thank you so much for joining us today. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, I'm invite you to turn to the book of Revelation or open an app. Revelation is going to be the easiest book you find in the Bible because it is the very last book uh, in your Bible. And so the book of Revelation, uh, we are starting a new series this morning called Flickering Lamps, and we are going to be moving through over the next several weeks, Revelation chapters 1 through 3. I'm going to stop at the end of chapter 3. Maybe another day, another time, we'll move through the rest of the book. But we are moving through chapters 1 through 3, and we've entitled this series Flickering Lamps. And I just want to point out this morning, you, you kind of notice a new stage design this morning. I want to say big thanks to Pastor Matt uh, for doing that as well. And, and uh, giving us a little little different creativity back there this morning, so appreciate Matt and his efforts with that. But as we're moving through, why we call this Flickering Lamps is because we're going to learn over the next several weeks as John is writing to these seven churches in Revelation that they are the light of the world. That's what the gospel tells us as believers in Jesus Christ, that we possess the light of the dark, uh, of the light of the hope of Christ in a very dark world. And what you're going to learn today is if we don't focus on Christ in our lives, then that light begins to flicker. All right, so that light in you as a believer, if that focus isn't Jesus, it's going to be able to start flickering. As a church, if our focus isn't Christ, our light is going to start flickering. And we don't want that light to flicker. We want it to shine brightly out in the world so that people will come to know Christ as their Savior. The book of Revelation, I know when you come to it, sometimes that sends people like into hives, right? You're like, oh my gosh, Revelation, right? Ugh. And you read this and it's scary for some of you and you're kind of thinking, oh man, I don't know what in the world's going on. Here's what I want you to know about the book of Revelation. It's not so much about a code that's to be cracked. God did not write the book of Revelation for you to spend hours upon hours upon hours trying to figure out who the Antichrist is going to be. He didn't write it for you to try to figure out what the mark of the beast is and what 666 really means. He didn't write it so that you can have nice, neat charts and graphs trying to figure out every little detail. Here's why the book of Revelation exists in your Bible. For you to put your eyes on the one who's on the throne. For you to put your eyes on Jesus and to know that Jesus wins in the end. See, the book of Revelation is this. It's a book of worship. The book of Revelation, when you read through this, there is worship all throughout the book. It's a book about God's justice and how no evil is not going to be, you know, evil doesn't go unpunished. Like, God will take care of evil. And so what you see all throughout this book is the rule, the reign, and the authority of Christ. And when you and I, as a church and as individual people, put our eyes on Jesus, and we say, Jesus, you are king, 
You are the lamb. You are the one that rules and reigns throughout all of eternity. Now that light shines bright out of us, no matter what is happening all around us. See, when John is writing this letter, he's writing it from the island of Patmos. He is a political prisoner under the Roman Empire rule. Uh, John's a very old man at this point. He's writing this near the end of the first century. Uh, He's one, the only one of the original dirty dozen disciples left, right? All the other 11 have died at this point. Uh, Many have, you know, martyred for their faith. And here's John, older in his life. He's been exiled out to this island because of a belief in Jesus that he had, that he held, that he shared with others. And verse 1 tells us that this is the revelation of Jesus. The word revelation means to unveil, to unfold, to show And so this book is to show us what is to come, but it is a revelation of Christ that is given to John to share with us that we may share with the world. So I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, uh, stand and honor the reading of God's Word. This morning, I'm going to read a big portion of chapter 1 with you. Uh, The reason being is because through the sermon, we're going to be skipping around in verses, and I want you just to get the whole flow of chapter 1. John writes in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servants, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Verse 4 says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was, who is, who was, and is to come from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom priest to God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, verse 7 says, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Notice verse 9. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patience endurance that are in Jesus Christ, who is on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard uh, behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Verse 12 says, then I turn to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flaming fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters." Verse 16 says, in his right hand held the seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword in his face like the sun shining in full strength. John says this in verse 17, when I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last, I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And just as verse 3 says, we're praying blessings for reading aloud this prophecy, hearing it, and keeping it. Let's be seated. When you look at Revelation chapter 1, what John gives you is this vision of the risen, glorified Christ. And so what I want to do with our time together today is to put your eyes on that Jesus and to say, who is he? Who is this Jesus that is the risen, glorified Christ? I want you to notice in the chapter, number one, that Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our priest. Look with me in verse 13. John says there, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. The feet were like burnished bronze refined in, fi- in a furnace and his voice like the roar of many waters. What John gives you there is a picture of Jesus being our priest. He's wearing the priestly clothes from the Old Testament. So John is doing what the author of Hebrews is doing to constantly point us that Jesus is our high priest, that it is Jesus and Jesus alone that intercedes on our behalf before God for our salvation, that it is Christ who is now seated, and this is so key in the book of Revelation, he's seated on his throne. In the Old Testament, in the tabernacle days, when the high priest went into the you know, Holy of Holies to do the Day of Atonement sacrifice. He could not be seated there. He had to do the sacrifice, and then he had to get out. There was no chairs. There was no sitting. Why? Because the work of salvation was never done. I had to turn around and do another sacrifice, and then do another sacrifice, and do another sacrifice. But it is Christ who is seated on his throne. It is Christ as your high priest and my high priest because of his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross now says the work of salvation is finished. I finished it. I accomplished it. I won that for you, and now I'm seated to show you it is done. I am the high priest. I am the Savior. But notice also what John tells us, that Jesus is powerful. He's not only our priest, but he's powerful. Look in verse 5. John here in this vision says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, who is the firstborn of the dead, the rulers of the kings of the earth, and to him who loved us, who freed us from our sins by his blood. I want you to notice three ways that Jesus is powerful in verse 5. First, he is powerful over death. Do you notice in verse 5 his power over death? He says he's the firstborn of the death. You know, firstborn there uh, is, a, is a, a position of prominence, preeminence. This is Jesus who has conquered death. If you've read through the Bible, you know there are stories of other resurrections within the Bible, that people died and then they came back to life. One of my favorite jokes that I have, it's not a great joke, I don't claim it to be a great joke, 
But sometimes, you know, as preachers, we'll talk to each other on Sunday afternoons and we'll, you know, talk to each other on Monday and say, well, how'd church go today? How'd it go? And sometimes it's hard to say how church went, quite honestly. You know, sometimes it's, wow, it was really great. Some Sundays it's like, yeah, it wasn't so great. You know, some Sundays you go, I don't know if it was great or not. So usually on those days where I go, I don't know if it was great or not, I say, hey, you know what? At least no one pulled a Eutychus today in the service. You guys remember who Eutychus was in the book of Acts? Eutychus one night was sitting by a window on the second or third story, and Paul had been preaching long. Paul had been preaching throughout the night. Eutychus, sitting near this open window, gets a little tired. Room's a little stuffy. Falls out the window. He dies. Paul goes, prays for Eutychus, brings Eutychus back to life. So as long as nobody pulls a Eutychus in here today, it's a good day, right? It's a good day. So there, 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 are, there are resurrections all throughout the Bible, like the man Eutychus. But what happened to Eutychus later? He, he probably fell asleep again. And, you know, don't put Eutychus near the window. Right? Like, let's just let's make sure Eutychus finds another seat. But a guy named Eutychus would have died again, even though he rose from the dead. But the firstborn of the dead Paul, that, 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 that John's given you is that this is Jesus who died and never died again. This is why Christ says it in verse 18. He says, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. It's Jesus who has the power of authority and death. So that means this. As a believer in Jesus Christ, as one of his disciples, death is not your greatest enemy. Death has already been defeated on your behalf. Yes, you and I will die physically, but death is just a passing now from this life into the next. It's just a transfer from here to heaven for all of eternity because of this one on the throne named Jesus who has defeated death for us. And that's good news. Amen? And so here is Jesus who is powerful over death. Notice verse 5 as well. He is powerful over the kings of the earth. It says he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That does not mean this, that Jesus is one, waiting one day to rule over the kings of the earth. Yes, when he comes again, he will rule and reign literally from the earth. But right now, he's the ruler over all the kings. Right now, he is the ruler over all our presidents we will ever elect. Right now, he is the ruler over all of the world leaders. Why? Because in his post-resurrection appearance, in the end of Matthew's gospel, when he came to the disciples, Matthew 28, 18, he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and in earth. All authority. That's why he looks at the disciples and he says, as the one who possesses all authority, now go and make disciples of all people in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I command you to. That's why Wyatt Heights here, we say we take that commission, we express it out as we're called to love and to lead all people to a new life with Christ. Why? Because that's what the one of all authority has told us to do. Look, you want to come to know Christ as your Savior, you want your sins forgiven, you want heaven as your home, then you submit to all his authority in your life. For those young people in the room this morning, all of our kids, all of our teenagers, learn this lesson that adults we're still trying to learn. Learn it at a young age. Being a disciple of Jesus means this. He has all authority in your life. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. He has all authority. And when your authority and his authority don't match, guess who changes? 
not Jesus, you, right? When your beliefs and Jesus' beliefs don't match, guess who changes? Not Jesus, you. You want to say you follow Jesus, adults, teenagers, kids? That means you bend the knee to all his authority in your life. That means you follow when he says go. That means you stay when he says stay. That means he, when he says you change that belief back to what I say in Scripture, you come back to Scripture because following Jesus means submitting to all his authority. He has power over death. He has power over the kings of the earth. But notice also in verse 5, the third way he has power is that it says, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. I love that. He's powerful in our redemption. He's powerful in our salvation. That means this, as, as disciples of Jesus, when you come to Christ, you're saying, Jesus, I'm trusting you to take away all my sin. I, I'm trusting you to forgive me. So that's why we wholeheartedly, 100% reject any form of works-based salvation. Because for you to sit there and say, okay, I'm going to trust Jesus, but then I've got to earn my way into heaven. I've got to do enough good works to try to get all of this sin kind of cleansed out of my life. Yeah, I'm trusting Jesus by faith, but it's going to be by my good moral efforts to get me into heaven. Do you know what that does? You know what that really does? That type of gospel is not a good gospel. That will send you straight to hell. That is spitting on the face in the work of Jesus. Because when you add works to your salvation to say that this is now going to forgive me of my sin based on what I do, then you're saying what you've done wasn't good enough for me. That Jesus, your work on the cross, it didn't do all that it set out to do. That Jesus, when you said it was finished, there was still work to be done. So when you try to build a works-based salvation, you and I, brothers and sisters, we have to wholeheartedly reject that because this is Jesus who says, I have all authority. I have all power over death. I'm the one who cleanses you from your sin by my what? What does it say? Verse 5. What does it say, church? By his blood. It's by his blood that we are cleansed. This is Jesus who is our priest. This is Jesus who is powerful. When we look at the resurrected, glorified Christ, we're getting this picture of this Jesus that we worship, and this Jesus is permanent. He's permanent in our lives. I love what verse 8 says. He says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He's your priest He's powerful. He's permanent. Right there, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. The Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. So Jesus is essentially saying, I'm the A to Z in your life. Right? I'm the A to Z. If you look at the Amazon symbol, the company Amazon has an A and a Z in it, and an arrow that's kind of pointing from that Z to that A. So Amazon's slogan is, we ship everything from A to Z. <laughs> There's nothing that Amazon won't ship to you. you know, some of you are going to go home and try that now. That's okay. Yeah. All right. But their, their idea is, hey, from A to Z, we, we'll send you anything. Jesus is permanent. 
He's the A to Z in your life. People are going to come and go in your life. Spouses are going to come and go. Friends are going to come and go. Family members are going to come and go. Pastors are going to come and go. Teachers are going to come and go. Coaches are going to come and go. You know, all these people come and go in our lives constantly, but what we find in Christ is one who doesn't come and go. That Jesus says, when you come to me by faith, you trust in me, I'm there, and I'm not going to leave you, and I'm not going to forsake you. That means when you go into the doctor's office for that diagnosis, and it's scary, you're not there alone. That, that, that means when you go to work and you don't know if this is the day you're about to get laid off, you're not sitting there talking to your boss alone. I mean, when you have to go down to the funeral home to plan the service of a loved one, you're not there alone. That now as disciples of Jesus, there's never a time where Jesus is not in our lives. You get this picture from David in Psalm 139 where David in Psalm 39 is essentially teaching you about God's just omniscience and uh, his power and his omnipresence, where essentially David's saying, God, where are you where I am? I mean, God, God, where can I go to flee from you? God, where can I go? Is there any place where I can get away from you? And the answer is no, right? The answer is no. Jesus is always there. Jesus is always permanent in our lives. He is the one that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is Jesus who is our priest. This is Jesus who is powerful. This is Jesus who is permanent. But this is Jesus who's protective. And I want you to notice this work of Jesus. This is Jesus who is protective in our lives. He protects us. Pick up in verse 12. Then I turn, John said, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. Now I want you to drop down to verse 16. So in his right hand, he held the seven stars from his mouth. It came, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face like the sun shining in full strength. Now drop down to verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What you see there in those verses is Jesus who's protective. Now we're told that the lampstands are the churches in verse 11. Those are the seven churches that John's going to write the letter to Revelation 2. Those churches are lampstands. That means this, this is taking you back to the Old Testament tabernacle days where you would have a lampstand, a, a seven kind of prong lampstand in the tabernacle that would hold seven small oil lamps. It was the job of the priest to make sure those oil lamps were always lit, shining forth light. Okay? Again, that is pointing us to the mission of us as believers in Jesus, pointing us to the mission of us as a church. We're always shining for the light of the gospel in a dark world. We take our eyes off of Jesus, those lights begin to flicker. We don't want to flicker, we want to shine. We see that he mentions the seven angels of the church. The seven stars are the angels. We'll, we'll get into this more next week, but I believe that that are the pastors of the churches, the elders of the churches, the, the, the leadership of these seven churches. But I want you to notice in verse 12 and in verse 13, while Jesus says, and when John saw he's in the midst of the lampstands, 
And so if you underline, circle in your Bible, I underline that word just right there in my Bible in verse 13, in the midst of the lampstands. See, understand this, that Colossians 1 will tell you that Jesus is ultimately the pastor of Heights Baptist Church. Yes, I am one of your pastors. We have pastors ordained here on staff. Pastor Jonathan is ordained, Pastor Matt. I'm an ordained pastor. There's several other in our congregation that are ordained. I am one of the pastors of Heights Baptist Church. But Jesus, we're told in Colossians 1, is the ultimate head of the church. That he is our ultimate pastor. He's our ultimate shepherd. I'm one of those under-shepherds that leads. But it's Christ who is our chief shepherd of Heights Baptist Church. So Jesus is over our church in authority. That Jesus has every right to come into our church life and our lives individually and say, here's what I want you to do. All right, because I'm, I'm ultimately over that. But notice also this. Jesus isn't disconnected from us. But where is he? He's in the midst of us. He's here. So every time we gather, it's the presence of Christ that's here. Every time we go through a pandemic, Lord, help us not have to do that again, please. Guess what? He's here. Right? And so what you see is that Jesus is in the midst of us. Jesus is protecting us. Jesus is bringing us through things. Jesus is working in sometimes ways we don't understand. And did you notice not only is in the midst of us, but how the text in verse 16, verse 20, verse 13 said it. Where are you positioned? You're in the position in his right hand. That Jesus has you in his right hand. Why is the right hand significant? Because the right hand in scripture is the hand of power. It's the hand of protection. It's the hand of preeminence. So it is Jesus who says, I have you in my right hand. I have you in my powerful hand. That means this, nothing's going to snatch you out of that hand. Nothing's going to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no amount of cancer, there's no amount of dementia, there's no amount of Parkinson's, there's no amount of inflation, there's no amount of all these things that we have to go through. There is nothing in the book of Revelation that any of them may have gone through or that we will ever go through where Jesus says, that will take you out of my right hand. I always have you there in the powerful, protective hand of Christ. So he is our priest, he's powerful, he's permanent, he's protective. And I don't know about you, but when I read chapter 1, that leads me to the fifth point of who Jesus is, and it makes me want to do this. He's praiseworthy. He's praiseworthy. And Jesus is worthy of your time. He's worthy of your attention. He's worthy of your praise. He's worthy of your life. We pick up in verse 16. It says, In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, his face like the sun shining in full strength. Notice John's response. When I saw this, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I love those verses, some of my favorite verses in chapter 1. And because John sees this vision of the glorified, resurrected Christ and literally falls like a dead man. And I love what Jesus does. Don't miss it. Jesus could have stood there and said, John, get up. <laughs> 
You're being silly. Stop that, John. You know who this is. I walked with you for three years. We picked on Peter at the campfire constantly at 1 a.m., right? Jesus told jokes, okay? You guys get that, all right? But here's John right there as though dead. And Jesus could have said, John, get up. Instead, what did he do? He took his hand, not his left hand, but that right hand, that right hand of power, that right hand of protection, that right hand of all authority, and he put it on John. He said, John, get up. This is me. I'm the first and the last. You know, I beat death. It's amazing to me in the Gospels, if you'll read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and note how many times Jesus physically touched people. He often touched people that society considered were untouchable. People who were blind, people who had leprosy, people who were lame, people who had special needs, people whose society said, you're not worthy of time, attention, or touch. But when they encountered Jesus all throughout the Gospels, it's oftentimes Jesus putting his right hand on those folks. Reaching out to you, reaching out to me in the untouchable moments of our lives, in the sinful moments of our lives, in the moments of doubt, in the moments of pain, in the moments of anger, in the moments of hurt. It's Jesus always reaching out to us with that right hand and saying, you're one of mine. I love you. I love you. Let me forgive you of that. Let me come into your life and remind you of my power. Let me remind you of my preeminence. Let me remind you of my authority. It's often the touch of Christ that changes our lives. And how many of you today who need to say, I need to be touched by that Jesus. I need to be touched by that resurrected living Christ because I have this situation. I, I have this problem in my life that I need Jesus to intercede for. It's this Jesus who is protective. It's this Jesus who is praiseworthy. And we are to praise this Jesus. He is our priest and he is powerful. You've probably used this phrase this past week. And the phrase in your home you probably used was this, when I see it, I'll believe it. Anybody? When I see it, I'll believe it. You probably did it without even thinking. Your teenage child came to you and said, Mom, today I'm going to clean my room. And you said, when I see it, I'll believe it. Might even happen yesterday. Such a nice, beautiful day outside. And your husband came to you and said, instead of watching college football today, dear, I'm going to do the honeydew list that you've had posted on the refrigerator for the last three months. I'm going to knock all that stuff out today instead of watching college football. And you look lovingly in his blue eyes, that handsome man you have been married to for over 30 years, and you looked at him and said, when I see it, I'll believe it. We have an idea that when we need to see something, we'll believe something. But in Scripture, what happens is the more you see Jesus, is the more you become like Jesus. See, when it comes to Jesus, seeing is not just believing, seeing is becoming. 
So the more I see Jesus, the more I spend time with Jesus, the more I obey Jesus, the more I allow Jesus to have authority in my life, the more I become like Jesus. So let me give you a piece of homework this morning, and all of the students are like, ugh, okay? So adults, I'm going to call you out of retirement and put you back in school, and here's your homework assignment this week. Spend time with Christ. Spend time with him. Now, some of you are looking at me, you're like, I don't have time for that. Sure you do. Sure you do. You got 10 or 20 minutes a day. Don't watch Sports Center for half an hour, right? Turn off the Netflix show for 30 minutes. When Netflix ends that one episode and it's like, are you still here watching? Go, no. No, I'm not watching anymore, right? New episode starting in five seconds. No, it's not. I'm going to stop. I'm done, right? You don't have to binge watch the whole Cobra Kai season all in one day, Okay. <laughs> You've got the time if you'll make the time. So make the time for the one who has all authority. Make the time who, for the one who is your priest, who protects you, who loves you, who beat death on your behalf. And it's simple. Just start in the book of Mark. Start in the book of Luke. Read a chapter. Read two chapters a day. Just sit there with your Bible and say, okay, Jesus, what does it mean today? What, what do you want from me? Spend time praying. Spend time talking to him. Write down some prayers this week and watch how God will answer him. But spend time praising this one who is the risen, glorified Christ. And I guarantee you, the more you see Jesus, you'll become like Jesus. And just like John, you'll say, how great is our God. Let's pray together. I want to thank you so much for watching today's message and just want to ask you an important question and it's essentially this. Have you made a decision in your life to follow Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life? You know, there's a man in the Bible one time that came up to Christ and said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And maybe today you're sitting there thinking that exact same thing. I know I have a lot of things in my life but I'm not sure I have eternal life. I'm not sure I have the forgiveness of my sin that's promised by Jesus in the Bible. And Christ told that man, you have to follow me. And so that's what the Bible tells us, that in order to be saved, we follow Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our lives. And to follow him means this, we trust him. By faith, we're trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. By faith, we're trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection from the grave for the forgiveness of our sin. And so in order to start that relationship, place your trust and faith in Christ. I know a lot of people maybe overcomplicate it, but the Bible says what you do is pray. Just call out to the Lord. Romans 10, 13 says, for whoever calls out the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so I just want to encourage you right now where you are, if you're ready to begin a relationship with Christ, you can simply just bow your head and pray with me. Say, dear God, I'm ready today to follow Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of my life. By faith, I trust in his death, burial, and resurrection. God, thank you for saving me from my sins and giving me eternal life with you. I want to invite you, if you prayed that prayer with me, to let us know. You can go to heightschurch.org connect. And there on that connect page, you're going to see a little tab that says decision. You click that decision, fill out that information. That's going to come right to me and we'll be in touch with you no matter where you are because our mission here at Heights is to love and to lead all people to a new life with Christ. 
So we want to just help you take that next step of faith. So go to heightschurch.org slash connect, click that decision button, and let us know that today you began a relationship with Christ. Till we see each other again, God bless.